Welcome to The Founders. This is the podcast where we dig into the startup stories of some of the most exciting and innovative businesses by speaking to the founders themselves. I'm Alex. And I'm Joe. And in this episode, we're speaking to the founder of Warehouse Project and Parklife, Sasha Lord. So we covered a lot of different topics and uh, in the short time that we had, we covered eff- effectively the tip of the iceberg of lots of different things because yeah, Sasha's involved in all sorts like park life in itself is a whole subject warehouse is a whole subject he previously owned Sankey's, uh, Sankey's before that um, he's also become the first nighttime economy advisor for Andy Burnham um, so we cover a lot but what what were you keen to find out about Sasha well first of all I tried to find out how he got people to go to his first ever event that he launched and he, he had a, an interesting way of getting people there I'll not spoil it as well as, um, I think more recently, the name Sasha Lord has gone from just an entrepreneur to more of a spokesperson. So I wanted to ask what that was like for him during COVID. What about you? I think it was really interesting drawing parallels between what it is like trying to set up an event and trying to bring people into that event and what it's like trying to set up anything like a business or a brand and how much you have to think about it, how much goes into it, the time that it takes to scale. Um, So it was really fascinating understanding some of the inner workings of Manchester nightlife and, and nightlife in general. Alex is absolutely right. There's tons that is covered in this episode. Um, we really do only scratch the surface because of how much is in here, but um, I hope you enjoy this. This is the founder of The Warehouse Project and Park Life, Sasha Lord. Enjoy. So, Sasha, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you for having me. So, you're quite famously the founder of Warehouse Projects and Park Life. But before we get into those, do you want to tell us a little bit about what you were doing prior to starting those? At the very beginning. Yeah, almost when did or when did the spark for almost nightlife or entertainment and events as a career? When when was that spark for you? So I think the the spark kind of happened without me knowing it. So I was in the sixth year, fifth and sixth year at, at school. I went to a very good school, but it coincided with what people refer to as Manchester. Um, those years when it was Factory Records, Stone Roses, Happy Mondays, New Order James, Hacienda Nightclub. Um, and literally, you know, now we talk about New York, Berlin, Barcelona, but the world was looking at what was coming out of Manchester. The music, what we were doing, what we were wearing, obviously our football. And I got sort of encompassed in all that there. It really excited me. Something was happening and I wanted to be a, a part of it. And the cool kids at school, the elderly kids were talking about the Hacienda. I thought, well, I need to go and see what this thing's all about. And I'll be honest, the first week I turned up, I borrowed my dad suit, shirt, tie, got to the front door nice. <laughs> and security like, get out. Wait, you know, what do you think you're doing? So I went back the following week in just a jeans and t-shirt and, and went in there and it, it blew me away. It really did. And I think that was the spark that, you know, there's something special that's going on here and I just want to explore it a bit. But when I left school, I didn't get any A-levels or, or my other colleagues at school went to Oxford, Cambridge, really good universities. Education didn't interest me whatsoever. Just had no, I found it boring, to be honest. I never really wanted a, a nine to five, but I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I did have a nine to five to begin with. I worked in a, a clothes shop in Altrincham and I had a market stall as well on a, on a Sunday. And then there was one day when I had quite a few bills that I had to pay. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to put a party on an event to try and get some cash to pay these bills. And it was at the end of the night, the event was 4th of July, 94. Hacienda, and I think I made 300 quid. 
And I thought, well, hang on a second, I've made £300 in one night, but I'm getting paid 120 quid to work six days in a clothes shop. Mm. This is kind of a no-brainer. You know, I get to to put these parties on versus standing selling jeans and T-shirts. So I think that was that was what started it, and I've not looked back since. I think, so for most people, if they get to a certain week or a certain month and they're like, I'm a bit short here, I need some extra money, their mind doesn't go to, I'm going to go and put an event on. Their mind probably goes to, I'll go see if there's an extra paper round at the local news agent, or um, maybe there's a, a, a night shift that I can do at XYZ. What is it about, well, your first experience at Hacienda and then moreover planning events that, that seem to draw you in? I I always had this thing in the back of my mind. I knew I didn't have a professional vocation. I didn't know what it was going to look like, but I always knew I wanted to be my own boss. Yeah. I always knew I wanted to work for myself. So you're right. I could have gone some extra shifts somewhere or taken like a second job or something, but I'd still be constricted. And I didn't have a clue what it was going to be, but I always thought I was going to go down that route. And I think that was probably the reason why. And I didn't, when I put that first night on, I didn't realise that was start of a career. I mm. thought it was going to be a, a one-stop shop, but actually I enjoyed it. What gave you the, the confidence to be able to do that? Well, how did you find a space? But then how did you know that you were going to get going to be able to get people to to come to this event and, and pay money to get in? Well, I didn't. That was the first mistake. So uh, I put a student night on. Uh, 4th of July, there are no students here. They've all gone home. So <laughs> that, like, for mistake number one. So I quickly realised with three weeks to go, I had to pay the club £1,000, DJ 150 quid, 200 quid. Like, I've got a problem here. So if I'm being completely honest, it was, a, I actually blagged it, the first one. Right. And I realised, everyone knows if you say, if I say to you now, listen, bit of gossip, don't tell anyone. There's a very good chance you're going to tell yeah, someone. Yeah. And you'll say to that person, look, I was with Sashi the other don't tell anyone, but he told me this. So I went to all the shops in Manchester that have flies on the tables. I don't know if they still do it now, but in clothes shops, there's always a, like, a little rack near the, where, you know, where you pay and you pick up flyers. Um, and I said to the staff, hi, I worked for Hacienda. I didn't. That was a lie. <laughs> worked for Hacienda. Um, listen, don't tell anyone else, but because you've been taking all our flyers all year, we've got this really special party on the 4th of July, 1994. Um, it says 10 quid to come in, but because it's you, we're going to do half price, five pounds. We're going to have to take that there. United are coming down. And people are coming down. Mention all these names. And they're like, yeah, we won't tell anyone. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, I went from zero tickets. I think it was 784 tickets I ended up on. So yeah, blagged it. Um, I don't think the club were happy because the press were phoning up. Is it true? And people are like, where are these rumours coming from? Um, <laughs> luckily, one of my friends was best friends with Justin Orange, who's Jason Orange's identical twin right so people had gone in there he turned up at like midnight and by then a few people had, had a few drinks mm. and they were like all right so where is take that then i've got there's one up there like, oh okay that's cool <laughs> and then so everybody everyone won that was it that's brilliant and then so how do you go from making 300 quid on a night in the hacienda to warehouse project what's the what's i mean the... that's a long yeah. that's a long road so <laughs> i decided i enjoyed the fourth of july I thought, well, it's not a student night, and I've learnt my error there. Let's actually put some student nights on. So between then and 2000, I ran regular student nights every single week. Um, and my unique selling point was I quickly realised that every single student night you went to, they were playing the same 
I think they still do to an extent now, that cr- same crap 30 minutes of ABBA, uh, you know, the 70s music and then the 80s music and then probably finish on House of Pain and jump around. And it was like so patronising. So I thought, well, why isn't there a student night that is £2.50, £3 to get in on a Tuesday night, but they're playing the music, they're playing the Hacienda. Mm. And that's what I did. And it was a, a huge success, you know, 1,200 people every Tuesday coming through the doors. And then there was a nightclub that was open, 94 to 98, called Sankey Soap. And the Sankey Soap closed down to gangs, basically. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. There was incidents there. There were shootings and stuff. It was closed for two years. But during those two years, Greater Manchester Police got a real grip on the issue that was happening in Manchester. And I'll be honest, it was rough. It was really bad. The gangs were running everywhere. And myself and my old business by the time thought, well, let's have a bash at this and let's reopen it. And we did reopen Sankey Soap. Sankey's, um, we had it 2000, 2006. Loved it, some great times. But after probably three years, I was quite bored of the same four walls week in, week out. I think what sowed the seed for Warehouse Projects, I don't think I know, was, have you ever seen the film 24-Hour Party People? I know the film, but I don't think I've seen it. That's poor. Right. (laughs) So you need to watch that. I'll put it in my notes. So... uh, (laughs) You didn't even put a note, you pretended then, didn't you? <laughs> I pointed to the notes. Okay, That's fine. So, I'll put it, I'll 24 Hour Party it. People was about that period I was talking about. And the Hacienda was dead centre of that. And actually, Steve Coogan played Tony Wilson, who was the, the one of the, the minds behind Factory Records. We went to the opening. So they literally rebuilt the Hacienda behind Sankey's. It was phenomenal. Bearing in mind the Hacienda never had a proper closing party. The bailiffs went in and shut it. So for that one night, it was actually like the closing party of the real Hacienda. Right. And I remember turning up um, for one of the scenes. There was 1,500 extras outside for the big dancing scene in the club. It was quite funny. I was still on the other side of the road. And the scene was a car would pull up, Steve Coogan would get out, pretending he was Tony Wilson, and then walk into the Hacienda. He had to do it five times because every time he got out, some smart ass in the queue went, aha! <laughs> like, it's like, fucking hell. So anyway, it was a great party. And then that was on the Saturday and they all came back to Sankey's for like the rap party, which was brilliant. We had New Orders, Simply Red. It was a who's who stood at the bar. Mm. Not a big fan of Simply Red. Um, well, actually, Mitt Hucknell, to be more precise. The rest of the band are fine. But... Um, we said, well, why don't we go back and actually put a, another party on in the Hacienda? But we went back and they demolished it, um, which was kind of really sad, but there were two incredible warehouses left there. So it was like, well, do you know what? Let's put a party on here anyway. And we did. And I think it was the 23rd of August, 2003. We had 12,000 people. Um, six, sorry, two in the afternoon till six in the morning. It was the first legal rave that took place in the UK since Thatcher had stopped them. The council supported it, which is unbelievable. And my ex-business partner, who would, you know, I don't know where he is now, I think it was in Ibiza or something, but he was always the party animal and I was always, you know, more the the focused one. And to this day, I still do not understand why. So the roof had like windows in the roof and this beautiful moment, the sun was coming through. It was incredible. You could see the crowd, like, loving life. Lauren Garnier was playing the most incredible sets. And my ex-business partner, David, walked to the front of the stage and pulled a Mooney. 
why why would you do that on a, on a moment like that you know that is when i die and go to heaven that's one of the questions i need answering because it bothers me and i have to live with that but i think that was the moment where i realized something was better than sankey soap and i announced a couple of years after that because it was playing in my mind quite a bit that I was leaving um, Sankey's I was bored and Sam my business partner who I was working with at Sankey's he followed me and said well why don't we do a few parties like we did at, in, the, in the warehouse I was like oh cool that's a good idea um, and in my mind I thought he meant four or five he went ahead and booked 24 we had to sell 100,000 tickets and, and that was that that was a birth of the warehouse budget and it was only supposed to be one year it was a warehouse project you know, people mm. don't actually look at the definite. What does that mean, warehouse project? It just rolls off the tongue now. Mm. But it was a project. And obviously, you know, well, the rest is history. And you mentioned that there was gang activity and things going on. And I'd actually heard a similar thing from, I'd, I'd met Tim Bacon once yeah. um, and had a relatively lengthy conversation. He was talking about the, the struggles that he had st setting up um, Manchester House, I think it was. And... There was some scary moments he was saying when he was setting that up. You mentioned that everything, sort of the, the police and everyone got a handle on this kind of thing. But was it still in any way difficult to set up an event space and setting up events in Manchester at that time? Not with warehouse projects, but certainly Sankey's back in 2000. Mm. So in 2000, um, when, it, when we decided to reopen again and went public, the old door team... I'm not going to mention names or anything like that or where, what their affiliation yeah, course, was, yeah, yeah. but they wanted to run the door again. Mm. Because in those days, if you ran the door, you ran everything else that went inside. And I flatly refused, said it's not it's not happening whatsoever. And the police backed me up on it. They said, if you put them on... Well, they didn't back me up. They told me, if you put them back on the door, we're going to shut you. At the back of Sankey's, the, in the car park, was uh, a generator, electric generator with like a metal fence all the way around it. The night before we opened, one of those members uh, that used to run the door came in with some colleagues, put a mattress in between the, the fencing, poured petrol all over it, set it alight, generator blew up. That was a signal, that was a warning signal to us. But what they didn't realise was actually Sankey's ran on its own generator and they'd knocked out all the electric Francoats. So on the opening night in October, I think it the was, we go. had a rave in the middle of Ancoats <laughs> and no one else had electricity. That's brilliant. Uh, but there have been some hairy moments. You know, it was never targeted directly at me, but I have been stood on two doors when a gun went off, where a car went past and they shot at, at security. And that's what went on in those early years. Mm. There was another, I remember running uh, an event at Granada Studios uh, back in the day. And the, that same firm wanted the door that night. So they called a meeting with me. When you get called to those meetings, you have to turn up. You had to in those days. And um, I thought, well, there's no way I'm going to drive my car to meet them because they're just going to take the car off me. Mm. And they wanted to meet me at McDonald's in Salford. Right. <laughs> right so I left my car in town. And I walked four miles, five, whatever it is, to McDonald's in Salford. And I never forget that my two big BMWs swung in and I had to get into the back of the one of them whilst he told me what they wanted from me. And it, I, I don't know what it is. If I get something in my head, I can't stop thinking about that one thing until I've resolved it. And the main guy that was talking to me, it was clear his baseball cap had been stolen because he still had the price tag on the back of it and like, the, you know, the... 
those things that bleep on the way out. Right. Yes, and he was talking to me, turning around talking to me, telling me he wanted the door and this and the other. And all I could think of was, you've nicked your cap. That's it. Um, but there have been some, there have been hairy moments. So just going back to the fact that you, so you've been through all that and you've you've sort of grown up in the industry at a time when it's can be a little bit hairy to do so. But then you're now selling... 100,000 tickets to do the warehouse project. That's 300,000. 300, yeah. So this is quite a, a feat to have in front of you. How do you go about selling 300,000 tickets when you've got that kind of Everest of a challenge in front of you? We are using the same, we've got Jason Orange. No. <laughs> so how did, it was, what I were wish. your tactics for this? Well, it just, it gradually built over the years. So when, when I don't do any of the bookings at all, that's down to my partner's partner, Sam Rich. But obviously there was a good foundation at Sankey's. We were booking some very good artists there. So when we did the first year, there was already a relationship with, with some of the agents. And the artists loved the idea that it was a raw warehouse, Bonington's Brewery, um, and it was something different. I think the music scene, certainly in Manchester, was very, very stale. Nothing was challenging or, you know, no one was doing anything different. This came along and they jumped at it and... Yeah, just year on year on year, we've improved and the audience has grown with us. And I think we're quite lucky with Manchester because it's the biggest student population in Europe. Every single year you get 70,000 new faces that have heard about the Warehouse Project, probably haven't been to Warehouse Project, but want to, you know, give it a go. And it's exactly the same with Part Life. In your eyes, does social media play a big impact in how to attract um, people to come to your events now versus... I mean, 2006, social media wasn't really a thing. Do you think it's easier or harder now with social media? And do you think it's a good or bad thing? Just because I think there's a, a good example where, um, say if you look at the warehouse project um, in isolation, that's taken years to build. And with that has come a reputation um, and, a, and a strong and a good, a good reputation that's developed over the years. Prime example of um, social media allowing for rapid viral explosion of, of a reputation would be Fred again who up until he did his boiler room set, for example, um, whenever that was, I think it was about three months ago, that went viral immediately. It got millions of views on YouTube, did the rounds on TikTok, and all of a sudden he's the most sought after DJ and people are trying to find where he's going to next. That happened in the space of a few months. Do you think the effect that social media can have on marketing now is a good or bad thing? And do you think it's easier or harder to build a long lasting reputation and business now because of social media? Actually, a lot of those viral things, I think, fluke they fluke it it just happens mm. um you know it's it's a different different to what you've just been talking about as in building things but something happened at part life when a couple got abused right on stage remember they got it was like an engagement thing and i said the day after because they got trolled quite badly i do remember that now yeah, yeah, yeah. and I, I said you know i'll pay for your honeymoon yeah. and i mean that went absolutely viral like i've mm. never seen before i think it's good and bad we don't tend to rest the marketing now on socials, if I'm being honest. We used to quite heavily, but you know, we announced Rotterdam, uh, Warehouse Project Rotterdam three weeks ago, and we did no build it whatsoever. Mm. We just went plonk, there you go. And everyone's like, you know, they weren't expecting it. Mm. I think I hate, I, really, I despise seeing things like a festival when they go, oh, we're 50% sold out, and then we're 55% sold out, and then we're, we're 70% are, public aren't idiots, are they? Mm -hmm. You know, you can see right through it. Yeah. 
obviously when when we announce the lineups, it's absolutely crucial. You've got to get it out there. Mm. But I think the days of this is the lineup and it's all about this have, have kind of moved on a bit. I from what I'm seeing is the customers now like to see the things that you can't necessarily see when you buy tickets. So what is going on backstage? Mm. Um, I'm not on TikTok, but I know they're building TikTok, and I know that is the you know, the thing that the kids really like. Mm. Uh, I was trying, during lockdown, my wife tried to force me to do ridiculous dances, which I <laughs> refused to do point blank. It's probably a good thing. Yeah, yeah we, we tried it for half an hour, then we had a massive round, didn't speak for the rest of the day. Um, so I think it, do, it definitely serves its purpose. I don't like some of the things I see on there. You know, I know the online safety bill is going through at the moment. I think it's fine for people to say things if you actually believe it, but you shouldn't be allowed to say it and hide behind a false image, mm. you know, pretend if you're if you're going to call me out for something like people do for the price of water, even though we're one of the cheapest now, if you're going to say, oh, you know, price of water, well, say it, you know, and that's fine. And I can see who you are and everything. Let's have a proper adult discussion. But don't say it when you're hiding behind a picture of a frog yeah. Yeah, and you've yeah. got 16 Union Jacks after your name. I mean, it's just it's weird, isn't it? I don't think anyone would be able to get away with um, we've got XY coming down or Z name coming down or whoever almost similar to how, how you did with the, with the first event that you ran. Because of that, do you think it might be harder or, or easier because of, the I guess, the potential reach that you've got on social media now? I, I think, so the next two years are going to be the hardest two years I think we've seen in, in the sector for for quite a while, and certainly in the last decade. I don't know if this is answering the, the, the question directly, but I think people need to be aware now that the cost of living is most definitely making mm. a difference. I really worry about those clubs that you know I, I would go to when i was growing up i'd probably go to the same club every saturday with the same mates it wasn't so much about the music but you had your favorite little corner that you yeah, used to yeah. go to and you know you'd go to the same takeaway on the way home that i think those places are going to have a horrific two years uh, sadly a lot of them aren't going to make this now i think those ticketed events where you'll probably plan it five months ahead and you know that's one big night they'll survive they'll get through it um but it is it is going to be very tough and i think that relates to the question i think promoters are going to find it very very difficult mm. um i think that certainly in the next two years people are going to be become far more picky where they go um and i quite like the fact you know I, i'm seeing at the moment there are some people who are anti-warehouse projects and I get it completely, you know, they don't want to go to a venue that's like 10,000, it's got the big names and stuff. And it's nice to see these smaller venues now developing. I, I sometimes get called out for this, but, you know, when you look at Hidden Nightclub, for example, mm. well, they all work for us. When you Animal Crossing, they all work for us. You know, and all these little things that start up by themselves, they came through warehouse projects. A lot of the artists that you see, certainly in the archive, were helping to break them, mm. you know, bring them through, give them a platform. You know, I can tell Calvin Harris, we paid 250 quid, no one ever heard of him. Annie Matt was 400 quid, David Guetta 500 quid, Florence the Machine 500 quid. You know, we've given these people platforms and, the, and then we go, oh, why, why is Calvin only playing for you? Well, we gave him a break to begin with. Mm. Uh, so it's, it's going to get a lot, lot harder, definitely. So going from, you were talking about social media and um, the how easy it can be in some senses to create this event. We've obviously, we've talked a lot about Manchester nightlife and uh, we've touched on warehouse projects as well, but it's not just warehouse that you're, that you're famed for. With social media, 
it's worth noting that if anyone's seen something like the documentary around Fire Festival, putting an event on is way more than just being able to promote it well on social media and sell tickets. You actually have to deliver a festival. So how did Park Life get started? Because it obviously obviously didn't start out as massive as it is today. No, Park Life started 2010, one day, 20,000 people in Platfields. And the idea was, so you mentioned it before we, we came on actually, uh, Mad Ferret. So they did a brilliant end of year student party, but they didn't have the right infrastructure. They didn't have the right lineup. And if I'm being completely honest, two days before the actual event, they had no money. They approached me, would I lend them some money? And I looked at where they were and I was like, not on your Nelly. Um, <laughs> and I think there was about six or seven of them. Two of them are still involved uh, in park life now. And I really like those two guys because what they did was when Mad Ferret didn't work and there was a load of debt left behind and four, four of them scattered away, ran away, those two actually said, you know what, we're going to pay what we owe, as in divided by six, we'll pay our, our sixth of it. And they did it and they still are, are shareholders of, of part life and I really respect what they did um, because not many people would do that. They mm. could have walked mm. off and they didn't, they fronted it. So yeah, fair play. But no, it built, you know, I, I put my head above the parapet and it's not always a good thing to do, but the, the team with me, Sam Rich, is phenomenal. You know, to four and a half thousand people work behind the scenes at Park Life during that weekend. It's like a city when you look at what's going on. The, on site, the hospital is probably better than the nearest hospital. It really is. It's incredible. So it's, it's not down to me, it's down to the whole team. You know, there's, there's people that work part life that's a far, far, far more important and far, far, far more knowledgeable about the, the festival than me. I feel like it's one of those things with festivals where if you aren't involved in the workings and you aren't involved in setting these things up, it's almost like running water in terms of the way that you can't really appreciate what you what is there in terms of the peripherals until it's not there and you go to a festival that's maybe not got something in the right place or is missing something. Was that something that you could kind of envision in terms of the needs of people at the festival when you were first getting going or is it a constant learning curve? And no, it's, adding... it's, it's constant and you never get everything right and it's so important that you learn from the mistakes you've made but even more so it's so important that you move on and improve the following year and that's why... And I know we're talking about part life, but with warehouse projects, we were at Store Street until 2018. And at the end of every single year, we always say, well, okay, how do we better next season? And that's not necessarily lineup. It could be sound, light, service at the bar, flow of people around the venue. And we actually thought we couldn't get it any better than it actually was. We peaked in 2018. And we knew if we went on sale in 2019, there's a good chance it would sell out again. But you're treading water. Mm. So we took the decision in 2018 to say, it's dead, Store Street is finished, we're taking it away. And we moved from 2,500 to 10,000, Mayfield around the corner. And that was probably the biggest risk we've ever taken um, in terms of warehouse projects because the thing with Store Street, I don't know if you ever came, but it was mm. such a nice, intimate feel. And potentially with 10,000 people, that could disappear. But the people are buying the tickets and, and the feedback is incredible. I think one of the one of the main things that we we try and figure out is when we're looking at warehouse and park life, um, you look at them now, they're both 
recognizably really successful. Um, was there a point or was there a specific point with each with each business where you looked around at what you'd built and thought this is this is real now because you know starting out when you when anyone starts out any kind of business it can feel like you're just sort of cobbling things together and seeing how it works and seeing uh, yeah, trying to pull it along there was there was a moment um really random this i don't know what made it happen but 2014 sam and i were stood on the main stage but the back of the main stage the Gordians couldn't see us just before snoop went on and we both looked at each other it was like i think we've done it that that was a moment we'll, i'll never forget it was like i've just got goosebumps now as i said that don't know what it was i think it was just looking at well it wasn't eighty thousand back then i think it was sixty thousand. but it was looking at waves of people snoop dogs in that cabin down there it's like, what the fuck have we done? <laughs> I think that was a moment that we won't forget. I want to move on to that in 2018, so around a similar time, you were appointed by Andy Burnham as Greater Manchester's first nighttime economy advisor. How did that come about? Because I feel like, well, from the outside, it doesn't feel like someone that would be so involved in both nightlife and festival life and entertainment would then want to move into politics, but maybe it is much more attached than no, I, I realise. It's not, it's not me moving into politics. I had a real frustration that, not necessarily with Manchester, but with other colleagues in other cities, what they were doing wasn't regarded by what I call the suits that, that mm. sit behind the town halls, the mothballs that make the wrong decision on, on loads of occasions. And I was like, well, you know, we're the fifth biggest economy in the whole of the UK. In, in Greater Manchester here, there's half a million people that work within the, the nighttime economy. Give us some respect. You know, mm. what? when Park Life's on that one weekend, forget what happens in Heaton Park, but we bring 17 million pounds into the local economy in, in taxis, hotel rooms, new outfits, restaurants, that kind of thing. So come on, listen to what we're doing. And it was the first time we'd ever had a mayor for the city region. Some devolved powers were given from Westminster. And... Um, there were quite a few candidates that, that went up. They all supported the idea of, you know, some sort of nighttime economy task force. Andy won. And he, he I don't know if you've ever met him, but he really gets nighttime economy. Um, and he samples the nighttime economy as well. He's always seen with a beer <laughs> at gigs. Um, but what happened was, I mean, it's going to take us on a downer this now, but I've got to explain the story. Ten days into Andy being um, the new mayor of Greater Manchester, it was an attack on the city region, 22nd of May 2017, at the arena. Mm -hmm. So I think about ten days after that, there was the One Love gig, Arena Grande, at the cricket ground. There was like Liam and Cole playing and loads of other phenomenal bands. And I went there. It was incredible what they did, 50,000 people. But it was an international event. Mm. Watch globally. And I was very conscious that we had part life a week after. And I thought, well, wouldn't it be nice to do something for Manchester at mm. that? So I wanted the, the paramedics that attended, you know, the, the police, the fire officers, local residents, hotels that gave free room. As many people as possible, let's get them on stage. Luckily, by pure coincidence, we had 1975's headlining it, which is as a Manchester reference. Mm. And I said to Andy, will you come along and will you say a few words, please, for Manchester? And I've never witnessed anything like it before. People in the crowd were crying. People on the stage were crying. 
And he came out with this speech about what Manchester means and how we all come together and, you know, we will defeat the people that did this to us. And it, you could hear a pin drop. Um, so the conversations kind of started there. And, and I've always, I always thought it was going to be a task force, like a committee of people. And Andy said, well, 12 months down the line, he said, you know, I've thought about this, thought about it a lot. So I want to ask you to be the nighttime economy advisor, but you're supported by a task force. So we meet regularly and it will, he's got representatives of you know, different theatres, cinemas, taxis, NHS, police, nightclubs. So we all come together and talk about things and then we advise Andy on what we think would help nighttime economy. And I have to say, he's been so supportive. He's been fantastic. And I think especially during COVID, clearly I'm biased, but I think Manchester spoke louder than any other city region and we got what we wanted. I think there's definitely something about Manchester. I'm, I, I can't put my finger on what it is, but in terms of togetherness and unity, when it feels like something's happening from the outside to try and disrupt the community, there's nowhere, anywhere else in the UK that comes together like Manchester do, but I don't know what it is that makes that the case. There isn't. I always look at... Go and go on YouTube and have a look at that video of a couple of days after the arena attack, St. Anne's Square. Yeah, it was uh, when they were putting the, all the flowers down. Yeah, there was a big yeah. crowd there, and yeah. one woman starts singing, Don't Look Back in Anger. And you see the crowd to begin with, they're like, You're right. Mm. And then after a few seconds, the whole crowd joined in. And, the, you know, that was the anthem for that, Don't Look Back in Anger. And that's what we do. It doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter whether you're the, the postman or your nurse or your student or you're unemployed at times like this when something happens to our city region we all come together and look after each other did you imagine when you were first starting out that that this is the position that you would be in when you're in the queue for the hacienda going in for the first time even before I, I like to think so before when i was 16 and i was completely shitting myself at school didn't know what to do and then when i was working in a clothes shop i was living in a bed sit in salford 33 pounds a week and i was like what am I going to do with my life? If I'd said to myself in that bed sit then, that my biggest luxury, by the way, was on a Friday. I used to love it. I have enough money left. I think it was £4.17 for sausage chips and um, mushy peas from the chip around the corner. And if I'd, if, if I'd told myself, well, you're going to have the warehouse project, biggest metropolitan festival in the UK, and first nighttime economy advisor for Manchester advising Andy Burnham, who... He's not just an, another mayor, it's Andy Burnham. And I, I know he's going to have an incredible future. He's already got an incredible CV. I would have said, somebody's drugged you, I think. <laughs> because it's not on paper, because I had no A-levels. That shouldn't happen. And I still have days when I'm expecting someone to knock on the door and go, well, actually, we've really made a mistake. It's, yeah, or just wait you off. Yeah, 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 yeah. Here's Anson Deck. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, you stretch that out for 30 years. <laughs> I think... More so during uh, COVID times, um, the name Sasha Lord became a lot more annoying. <laughs> well, you were yeah. you were everywhere during during yeah. COVID, but um, it became more of a spokesperson. Was that an intentional thing, or did that just sort of come about from things that you? No, felt? I, I had to do it because no one else was doing it, and it, I, I was doing it for Greater Manchester, but it, it became more of a, a UK thing. And I was like, people in my industry were just sitting at home quite happy with furlough mm. and at the same time I was getting calls off people who are the part life family 
and they were the freelancers. They didn't get a penny support for the government, not, not one P. And they were going to lose the houses. I know relationships that broke down, divorces happened, the kids aren't talking to them. And it's like, this really isn't right. So I was getting up every single day to try and fight for what I could. And one thing that I'm really proud about is when it did happen, Andy phoned me up and said, well, you know, we need to... He was really concerned that kids were going to go out and break lockdown. What do we do to entertain them? I was like, well, what do we do? I can't put a gig on. We're locked down. So we created something within five days called United We Stream. And it was a, an online platform of entertainment every Friday, every Saturday. It was completely free of charge to watch. We were saying to people, look, if you can donate £1, £2, £3, try and you know help people who really need it right now. And over 10 weeks, we raised £612,000 that went back out to people across the city region to help them. And I know it, it, it did some real good, but that didn't just work for Greater Manchester. We had 20 million viewers in the end. And the first, I think it was week three on the Saturday, we had a Hacienda party on. Don't know what it was, something happened. We were talking about viral before. This thing went viral. And I was getting text messages from people. How have you got my number? Like Gary Lineker, Angela Rayner, Vernon Kay. Like, this is amazing. And the sun was out. Everybody was in the garden. And everyone got absolutely wasted. And we had like over a million people watch it. I think it was 1.3. We crashed the website a couple of times. And Andy was screaming at me. And and it it was bonkers. It really was. It was like... I felt like Bob Geldof yeah. for that one day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The the amount that you did during COVID was um, was definitely admirable, and I think a lot of what you did did transition uh, definitely for me. But I think speaking to friends and family who knew the name Sasha Lord um, took it from Sasha Lord the entrepreneur to spokesperson. And I think in more recent times, obviously announced that you'd joined the Labour Party, um, potentially more of a political figure. No. So just to step in on there, that's the Guardian, the Times. Right. I, I said something and, and you say one thing and all of a sudden it becomes like this shark. Hundreds of thousands of people are members of the Labour Party. And I kind of always swayed towards there, but I've never pinned the badge on. Mm. But during the COVID period, I was having a lot of conversations with politicians and I'm not going to agree with everything that Labour do. It's like, I'm a United fan. Do I always agree with the tactics? No, but I'm a United fan. But everything they were talking to me about regarding hospitality, I felt was right and I felt it was the right way to go. And I wear a hospitality hat. That is my life. So I'm a living. So that's why as I said, I'm going to become a Labour Party member like other hundreds of thousands of people. I announced it and then... 6,000 people gave me an absolute kicking. 6,000 people welcomed me on socials. Yeah. <laughs> like a real weird day. Um, and then the Times ran with, was running for mayor. And the Guardian went, he's, he, that's it, then he's going for it. I'm like, come on. What, what, why don't you go and speak to Jack Jones down the road? He's, you know, he's a Labour Party member mm. as well. He's not yeah, running for yeah. mayor. That's all it was. Um, I've no aspirations whatsoever. And, and you know, People keep saying, when's Andy going back down to Parliament? I don't want him to go to Parliament. You know, we've got Eric Cantona here in Manchester. It'd be like it'd be like Fergie selling Eric Cantona to Leeds at like at the best point point. It doesn't let, let's keep the best politician here in Greater Manchester and let's get what's right for us. Hmm. Absolutely. Is there any plans at all 
for politics for you, or is is that a, a blanket no, or is it a maybe? Well, I've been told if, if I ever thought about it, it would end up in divorce. Right. <laughs> so I think it's, I think on the back of that is a good opportunity. No. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So just to bring the podcast to a close, there's obviously we have covered so much there and it's the tip of the iceberg of each subject i feel like the conversation could probably gone on for about three or four hours or something if we'd gone deep into each one but over your career what would you say is the biggest lesson that you've learned if you had someone here today that either wanted to get into their own festival and start and set something up or start their own nightclub what advice would you have for them i think my advice would be and i've said this a few times um, so it won't come as a surprise to anyone. But, you know, when, especially family, when you say to your family, do you know what? I've decided what I want to do as a career for the rest of my life. I want to put parties on. I said, don't be so ridiculous. Go and get yourself a nine to five job. And that's what I was up against. All my friends, like, come on, parties. You know, you need to get yourself a proper job, get a mm. proper job. And that carried on. Probably for five, six years, get yourself a proper job. When are you going to give up with this hobby? Well, that hobby I was doing, actually, I was earning more money than them telling me to go and get a serious job. And then people started to listen and started to watch after a while. So I think my advice would be, if you really, really want to go into the events industry or any other business, if it's your passion, it's what you want to do, then do it. Don't listen to, to anybody. Because I do believe... I don't know why. I think this is a. I think this only happens in England. There's a real jealousy amongst English people that they don't want people to succeed. I don't know why that is. You know, when when the people are at the top of the game, everybody else wants them to fail. It's mm. not life. Isn't a soap opera. You know, it's not EastEnders or Coronation Street. It's life. I think if you see somebody, I'm not talking about myself, by the way. But if, if you see someone doing really well. Like we spoke about him before, you know, Steve Bartlett, I did his diary, for, one of his first diary of his CEOs, and I thought, this is it's not going to go anywhere. I'm sat in a dark room with him asking me some weird questions. All right, it's nearly made me cry, which is a bit odd. But <laughs> um, no one's going to listen to this. All of a sudden, Steve's turbo. Mm. I was in Houston train station a couple of weeks ago. It's like a 12-foot Steve in the front of <laughs> W.H. Smith. So I'm like, what is going on? I can't get rid of the guy now. But there are people out there that, oh, he doesn't deserve to be successful. Well, why? Mm-hmm. Why don't they? And I, I do think it's this English mentality. It's so odd. It feels like people almost think, I want you to do well, but not better than me, kind of attitude. <laughs> so as soon as or people overtake them, they like, enjoy oh. watching the disaster of somebody failing. Mm. Yeah, they get yeah. a kick out of it. It's weird. So, yeah, I, I would say anybody that's telling you not to do it, if you really want to do it, don't listen to them. Go for it and prove them wrong. And if you do fail, try again. You know, get up, brush yourself down and keep going because you will succeed one day. Brilliant. Sasha, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Where can people find you on social media or other platforms? You won't find me on TikTok. (laughs) I'm not on Facebook. Very quick. I've got time to tell you a quick Facebook story. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. So back in the day when it was starting off, I'm not a snooper. I don't do it now. But I had a fake Facebook account so I could see what people were saying and what they were doing in the office. You know, nights out that I wasn't seeing. Um, so I chose this fake name that was Stephen Fisconti. Right. And it was Stevens from Stephen Patrick Morrissey. 
Manchester artist, not a popular one now, but Manchester artist, so Stephen. And Fisconti was the guy who produced David Bowie's albums, Stephen Fisconti. And that was it. So for a couple of years, I'd, I'd snoop around. And then one day I was in the kitchen in the office and uh, a guy called Rob said to me, so when you phone me, what's all this Stephen Fisconti business? <laughs> well, what do you mean? It's when the Apple phones came out and everything automatically connected oh, to everything synced, yeah. so oh, I was no. phoning people it was coming up Stephen Fisconti but no one had actually <laughs> so yeah I'm on Facebook uh, I'm on Twitter and Instagram Sasha underscore Lord got you so and Sasha, LinkedIn Sasha Lord on LinkedIn Twitter Instagram That's and it. Stephen Visconti on Facebook got you <laughs> with a V yeah, yeah. <laughs> perfect alright thank you so much for joining us thank you Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Founders. If you liked the content in this podcast, you can get new content from a new founder every week by following us on all podcast apps.